What is a painting? The image of the subject? The style of the artist? Hi, my name's Jean Dalmermuth, and as a paintings conservator, I see them as physical objects, how they're made, and everything that's happened to them since. Let me show you what I see, and you'll never look at a painting the same way again. Let's start by thinking about some of the things you can see by looking at a painting in person, just on the wall. And that could well be in the gallery of a museum, either in the museum's own collection or maybe at a special exhibition. But seeing it in person, as opposed to a reproduction. I think of the images of paintings you see on museums' websites or published in books as beauty shots. They've been carefully crafted and artfully lit to present a specific image of the painting. But that's only one image of it, and generally not what you see in person. But in-person is how a painting is meant to be seen. Let's take as a kind of prototypical painting Rembrandt's Aristotle looking at a bust of Homer in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and I'll have images of it on my website. In the painting, we see one standing figure, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, from about the knees up. He's dressed in a long white robe with a dark apron over it. Across his chest, like a sash, is a very thick gold chain. On his head is a wide-brimmed black hat. His right hand rests on a marble bust of the ancient Greek writer Homer, a bust that stands on a table in front of him. The colors are muted, creams and browns and blacks, with the flash of the gold of the chain, and the mood is dark and still and somber. So if you ask the question, what is this? That question could have many answers. You could say it's Aristotle looking at the bust of Homer, and by extension, an allusion to classical writing and how reputations change over time. Or you could say it's a Rembrandt, and you could know about when and where he painted it, and that was in 1653 in Amsterdam. It is very helpfully signed and dated, and how it fits into Rembrandt's body of work. But physically, what is it? So while paintings look two-dimensional in images, they are, like everything else in this physical universe, three-dimensional. And the most basic thing to understand about a painting is that it's a layered structure, like a layer cake. If you sliced through that cake, you could see all of the layers of the cake from bottom to top. At the bottom of the painting layer cake, you have the support, the solid substance that holds the paint, in the same way that when you paint a wall, you start off with a wall. And okay, so I'm mixing metaphors of layer cakes and walls, but I'm trying to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Usually, maybe 90% of the time, the support of a painting is either a wooden panel or a stretched canvas. And in later episodes, I'll be saying a lot more about both of those types of supports and also what that other 10% might be. On top of the support, there's generally a ground layer. It's like a kind of paint, and you can think of it as the primer that you might put on a wall before painting it. It starts off as a liquid, and it's applied, generally with a brush, all over the support, preparing it to be painted. It's generally the same color overall, no matter what the final image is going to be. The ground layer generally doesn't get a lot of attention because it's the most difficult layer to see. It's going to be get covered up by the paint, but it actually has a huge effect on the look of the painting. 
to go back to the layer cake metaphor, it's kind of like a filling layer that could be chocolate or raspberry or hazelnut, and each of those would make a very different kind of cake. As I said, the ground layer is applied as a liquid, but then it dries or hardens into a solid. And then on top of that ground layer, the painter can lay out their design with some kind of underdrawing. And that can be in any material you can draw with. So charcoal or chalk or ink drawn with a pen or a brush. Uh, it can even be, if the ground is soft, scratched in. And then you have the paint, which gives the color and the design, the image that we see. The paint is, like the ground, applied as a liquid, generally with a brush, and after it's applied, it dries or hardens so that it can't be redissolved. just as when you paint a wall, you can then wash it later with water. The paint itself is often applied in multiple layers of different colors, textures, and translucencies. On top of the paint, you may have a varnish. That's a clear coating that's brushed on overall after the paint has dried. It's different enough chemically from the paint that it remains a separate layer, just like the icing on a cake is separate from the cake itself. The varnish acts to protect the paint somewhat, but mostly it changes the look of the paint. It generally makes it glossier and it saturates the colors, meaning making them darker and richer just like when you put a pebble in water. So going back to that painting by Rembrandt, Aristotle looking at a bust of Homer, what can you see when you look at it in the galleries of the Metropolitan Museum? And how does that relate to what it is physically, what the layers of its layer cake, the support, the ground, the underdrawing, the paint, and the varnish are? The first thing you would be aware of is the painting's size and scale. So if you see an image projected on a screen or printed in a book, you don't have any context for how big that painting is. You may or may not be given information about its dimensions, but even if you are, I think it's really difficult to have a sort of bodily understanding of how big that is unless you actually measure it out. Rembrandt's Aristotle is 56 and a half inches high and 53 and three quarters inches wide, and that's 143 centimeters by 136 centimeters. I think some people are really good at dimensions, but for most of us, what does that actually mean? Whereas when you see something in person, you understand the scale of it in relationship to yourself. So. I take a lot of photos in galleries with people in them to give a sense of the scale of a painting, but don't worry, no one is ever recognizable. On my website, I'll put a photo of Rembrandt's Aristotle with someone standing next to it. Rembrandt's Aristotle, when you see the painting in person, is roughly life-size, maybe slightly oversize, and that has a lot of impact on the presence that the painting has. But the size also influenced how it was physically made and how it has to be handled if it's going to be moved. In comparison, nearby the Aristotle is another painting by Rembrandt, The Toilet of Bathsheba, which is only about a quarter of the size of the, the Aristotle. And meanwhile, Rembrandt's Night Watch in Amsterdam is three times as high and three times as wide as the Aristotle. But in photographs, you completely lose those very different scales. In person, you're also aware of a painting's shape. 
Most paintings are rectangular, although I'll talk later on about ones that aren't. But that can be exactly square, or quite elongated, or somewhere in between. Rembrandt's Aristotle is almost square, and that was a deliberate choice. Rembrandt, like most painters, generally made his portraits taller than they are wide, and his landscapes wider than they are tall. The size and the shape of a painting are determined by that first layer, the support layer. The artist started off with the support in the size and the shape that they wanted it to be. Although one thing to note is that a painting may not be its original size. It may well have been cut down, sometimes to a huge extent, so that you really only have a small fragment of the painting that was originally there. And on the other hand, sometimes paintings have been added to to make them bigger. Those kinds of changes I'll talk about in later episodes. So the second thing that is generally completely and intentionally lost in these kind of beauty shots is texture. When a photographer is taking an image of a painting for publication, they're very deliberately using lighting to eliminate any texture. Whereas in person, you're very aware of it, or let's say you are if you're attuned to it. And you can take pictures of that texture if you take pictures from strange angles rather than straight on. And I do a lot of that, and I'll put some of those pictures on my website. Rembrandt's Aristotle is quite textured. It's not perfectly flat, let alone two-dimensional. And the texture is created by multiple layers of the layer cake. It's painted on canvas rather than on wooden panel, and you can see the texture of a woven textile, a grid pattern created by two sets of threads going under and over each other at right angles. For paintings on canvas like this one, that canvas texture can show a lot or it can show very little, depending on how textured the canvas is. So is it very fine or is it coarse? And you can think of the difference between burlap and a high thread count sheet and on to what degree the texture of the support is obliterated by layers applied on top of it, the ground and the paint. Because the more layers applied on top, the less the texture of the, the support will show. A wooden panel wouldn't have that same grid pattern texture of a canvas, but instead might show something of the grain of the wood, although generally the wood grain gets covered up by the ground layer. So some of the texture of a painting is going to be from the support layer, but then some of the texture is going to be from the ground and paint layers. Looking at Rembrandt's Aristotle, some of the paint is very smooth, but some of it is applied in blobs, almost like lumps of toothpaste. And that pastiness is why this is called impasto. That's especially true of the heavy gold chain that Aristotle wears, and also in his hat. Some brush strokes show the texture of the brush as it moved through the paint. You can see the size of the brush that was used. You can see where the brush started and stopped. You can see which brush stroke was applied first and which was applied over it. In some paintings, the paint has a sort of really lumpy quality to it, which may be palette scrapings, clots of dried paint that were intentionally mixed up with the liquid paint to give it more texture. Sometimes artists, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries, will add other materials, sand or sawdust or even coffee grounds, to paint to give it more texture. Most of the texture of a painting has to do with the choices that the painter made, but some of it has to do with changes that have happened over time, and the most obvious of those examples is cracking. 
Once paint dries and ages, it gets stiff and brittle, sort of like a slice of bread that's been toasted. And if it's bent too far, it breaks. Most of the time, it doesn't actually break off because it's still stuck to the support that holds it together. But still, it develops a crack, maybe many cracks over hundreds of years. And the edges of those cracks tend to pull up a little bit, opening the crack up, but also making little ridges in what was once a smooth, continuous layer of paint. On Rembrandt's Aristotle, the most noticeable of those cracks run parallel to the edges a few inches in. Those weren't there when the painting was first made. They've developed over time. It's actually going to turn out that the pattern of cracking, where they are, what shape they are, how many there are, can tell you a lot about all of the layers of the layer cake and what has happened to the painting since. So another aspect I'll talk about today that you can see in the gallery, but that doesn't show in beauty shots, is gloss the specular reflection that comes back at you from the surface of a painting like a mirror. And you've probably had the experience of seeing a painting in a gallery and having to rearrange yourself to be able to see it without having a bright white reflection come back at you because the painting is very glossy. And with Rembrandt's Aristotle, you actually need to stand pretty far back from it if you don't want some part of it to be whited out by reflection. Some of that gloss is from the paint itself, what the paint is and how much medium is in it. And you can kind of think of house paint that can be gloss or eggshell or flat. But most of the gloss is determined by the top layer of the layer cake, the varnish. That oftentimes is put on to even out the gloss by making the whole thing glossy. It may have been put on by the artist, but more likely it was applied by a later restorer to help the paint look better. Many paintings were never meant to be varnished, especially paintings since the 19th century, and more on that to come. What's also true about varnish is that most traditional varnishes discolor over time. They get darker and yellower. Also, while they start off pretty much clear like glass, they become slightly more opaque, slightly frosted. And that coating over the painting changes the look of the colors. Again, I'll talk more about that and what a conservator might do about it later on. Now, I want to talk a little bit about framing. Most paintings that you see in museums have frames, and a frame is the structure that you see around a painting when it's hanging on the wall. The frame is often carved and gilded, sometimes quite elaborately so. And when you see a painting in person, the frame is a big part of your visual experience, and the design of that frame, the color, the scale of it, influences your impression of the painting. Rembrandt's Aristotle is in a carved and gilded frame, and the design kind of echoes the gold chain that Aristotle wears, and the width of it makes the whole thing bigger. But most beauty shots of paintings tend not to show the frame. The photo was either taken with the painting unframed or the frame has been cropped out. The museum is sort of deciding that the frame is extraneous information and in fact it might be a bit misleading. Frame designs have changed over time just as architecture and clothing styles have and their history is studied by scholars. Some paintings retain their original frames, but more often they were changed to later styles over the course of their lives. 
Now many museums try to put paintings in period-appropriate frames, but almost certainly this isn't the painting's original frame. It isn't what either Rembrandt or the original owner chose. But how do frames work? For most paintings painted, let's say, after about 1450, the painting and the frame are two separate objects. You have two different physical objects that can come together or be taken apart. And the closest analogy that I can think of is a cup and saucer. The frame is basically an open rectangle, generally made of four bars of wood joined at each corner. The painting is fitted into its frame from behind, kind of like a sign displayed in a shop window. If you go and look where the painting and the frame meet, you can actually see that they're physically separate, that they're not materially continuous. The painting is set back a little bit in the frame, and there's a little bit of a gap where those two things are pressed up against each other. To explain this better, I'd like you to imagine going beyond the experience of seeing a painting in a gallery. Let's imagine that you have access to this painting, that you can take it down off the wall, maybe into a conservation lab or some other kind of studio, and you can examine it more closely. If you look at the painting from the reverse, you would see the reverse of both the painting and the frame, and it would be more obvious that they're two separate objects. Generally, there are either mending plates or nails holding the painting into the frame from behind just by pressure. And if you take out those nails or mending plates, you could lift the painting out of the frame from behind. Because what you can't see when the painting is framed is that the frame has a little lip of wood that the painting presses against from behind. And this is really hard to explain in words, but obvious when you see a frame without a painting in it. So I've made a little video that I'll put on my website to show you. From behind, this looks like a little step down into the empty rectangle. This little step, this little lip of wood, is called the rabbit of the frame. And there are a few different ways to spell that word, and some people pronounce it rebate, but I've always uh, been taught to pronounce it rabbit. Although why it's called a rabbit, I have no idea. The empty rectangle at the center of the frame is a little bit smaller than the painting. So the painting sits on this rabbit. It sort of nestles inside, as I said, a little bit like a cup in a saucer. When viewed from the front, the rabbit covers up the very edge of the painting, which helps everything look neat. On the reverse, the nails or mending plates, as I said, pressure fit it in from behind. This all makes perfect sense once you've seen it, but if you've only ever seen framed paintings, it's kind of mysterious how the frame and the painting are wedded together and how you would be able to change out the frame without changing the painting at all. So, if you took the painting out of the frame, you would really see it in three dimensions because you'd be able to see the side edges. You could see its thickness, which is maybe something like a quarter of an inch up to about an inch and a half thick, or maybe seven millimeters to four centimeters. On a canvas painting, you'd see that the canvas is nailed or stapled to the side of the stretcher because there are two main elements to the support of a canvas painting. The canvas, and the stretcher. And a lot of people confuse a frame with a stretcher, but these are two very different things. 
They're generally both rectangles made out of wood, but whereas the painting, meaning the canvas together with the stretcher, can easily be taken out of the frame and put back again, the canvas and the stretcher are much more closely linked. Canvas on its own, of course, would be flexible, like a curtain or a bedsheet. So traditionally, painters have fixed the canvas to a stretcher before painting on it. A stretcher is generally a rectangle made out of wooden bars, and sometimes it only has four bars, one on each edge. Other times there are one or more crossbars to make the whole thing more rigid. The canvas is stretched over the stretcher, tight like a drum, and then tacked or stapled along the edges. And traditionally, this is done before the actual painting begins, although some painters, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries, paint on unstretched canvas, which is then attached to a stretcher later on, and some painters never attach the canvas to a stretcher at all, but sort of let it hang like a banner. Under very controlled conditions, like in a conservation studio, you can take out the nails or the staples attaching the canvas to the stretcher and take those two elements apart. But at this point, the canvas is very vulnerable. If it's bent too much or in the wrong way, it will break or crack the paint on top of it, which remember is stiff like a piece of toast. So now that you know a bit more about what a painting is, I want to think about how it got to be that way, because paintings have to be made, and that takes time and work. But like all made things, they start out as raw materials and ideas. In the case of Rembrandt's Aristotle, the painting began with the idea of the man who commissioned it, Don Antonio Rufo, a nobleman from Sicily. And we know this from written documentation that still exists. He asked Rembrandt to paint it, although he wasn't very specific. He basically asked for a half-length classical figure and left it to the painter to choose exactly how to do that. Don Antonio did care about the size because he had somewhere specific to hang it and other things that it was going to hang next to. So he told Rembrandt the dimensions that he wanted. Rembrandt took that idea and used raw materials to give it form. All of his materials were natural, made from animal, vegetable, and mineral sources. Some could be purchased, others were made in the studio. First, Rembrandt started with a stretcher the size Don Antonio wanted, a stretcher of a bit different design than the current one, and I'll talk about that later on. He probably had either a carpenter or an assistant, an apprentice, actually cut and nail the wood. Painters working before about 1800 almost always had many assistants in their workshops because this was all a lot of work. And even today, a lot of artists have assistants in their studios. So then Rembrandt, or again an apprentice, stretched the canvas over the stretcher and nailed it on. He bought the canvas with the ground layer already applied, and that made things a little faster. He then roughly sketched out the forms, although Rembrandt often made big changes from the designs he started off with. Then he, or again an assistant, made the paints he needed by grinding the pigment, the highly colored, finely divided powder, into the medium, in this case linseed oil. He then applied the colors in layers, building up the image and creating the texture. Once the paint had dried, he may have applied a varnish over it. 
And then once the painting was ready, it was shipped to Sicily. And we even know, again from archival documents, the name of the ship it went on, the Bartolomeus. But that was more than 350 years ago, and a lot has happened to the painting since then. Some of the colors have changed, and the paint had become more translucent. It has also cracked, and there have been some small losses of original paint. It has also been restored many times. While the canvas hasn't been cut down, a new layer of canvas was adhered to the reverse of the original to support it. Likely when that happened, Rembrandt's original stretcher was replaced with one of a modern design. The varnish has been removed and replaced multiple times, and any small losses of paint have been disguised with retouching. So what you see in the gallery is the sum total of all of that, everything Rembrandt did and everything that has happened since. But that's just one painting that looks one way. Why do other paintings look so different, and not just different subjects or styles, but different sizes, textures, and glosses? In the next episode, I'll look at how, by varying the layers of the layer cake, the support, the ground, the underdrawing, the paint, and the varnish, artists can create very different effects. I'll have images to accompany this episode on my website, jeandalmermuth.com podcast, because images help us understand things, but they aren't the things themselves. So I also want to encourage you to look at a painting or anything really around you in person, not just as an image on a screen or on paper, and to ask yourself, what is this? The music you hear is 1600 in Vienna by Sujay Govindaraj, and I found it on Tribe of Noise. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>